0: Chapter 14 of The Curious Quest by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 Mrs. Heath, in a kind sort of way, was beginning to lose patience with her lodger. She took him up some breakfast, which he had not ordered, and set it down firmly before him. I only wanted a cup of tea, Mrs. Heath, Bliss reminded her, looking wistfully at the bacon. "'Never mind what you wanted, sir,' she replied. "'What I brought you, you've got to eat. And there's an end of it. Going out all day looking for work with nothing solid inside you, indeed. You know,' she went on in a manner more conversational than usual, "'You too." "'Puzzle me, sir. I can reckon up most of my lodgers, "'but there are times when you fair take the wind out of my sails. Three or four days ago there you were dressed up to the nines "'and looking as near like a gent as can be. "'Now you have not a rag of those clothes left, Uh, "'not a sixpence in your pocket, "'and so as not to run into debt there you are trying to live on nothing. "'Such nonsense!' you're a young man of the build that needs nourishment you are sit down and get on with your breakfast bliss obeyed without further hesitation it's very good of you mrs heath he declared as he helped himself hungrily to the bacon some day don't make any rash promises young man mrs heath interrupted you will do what you can i know But it's clear to see that you're not brought up to earn your own living, and it's none too easy a job for them as that to start unexpected-like. "'There's a young man downstairs,' she went on. "'Just got a job at one of the motor places. "'I shouldn't wonder if that wasn't worth trying, "'what with all these taxi-cabs and such-like running about the streets.' "'Good idea, Mrs Heath,' Bliss cried. I'll go round Long Acre way first thing, and here's luck to you, sir, Mrs. Heath exclaimed heartily. Bliss presented himself about an hour later at one of the large motor establishments in Long Acre. The immaculate young gentleman to whom he made his application, who was lounging about with a cigarette drooping from his lips and his hands in his trousers pockets, shook his head decisively. No vacancy at all, he declared. We've more cleaners than we want and the office is full up. The only men we're looking for are drivers. Bliss had already turned away when a startling recollection came to him. He himself was a competent driver. He swung around. I can drive a car, sir, he announced. Could you give me a job as a chauffeur? Whom have you driven for? Myself. Bliss answered humbly. I owned a car once. The young gentleman looked Bliss over from head to foot. Then he pointed to a land outlet which stood at the centre of the immense garage on the threshold of which they were standing. Start up the engine of that car, he directed, and back her into number seven space, between the omnibus and the big napier there. Bliss accomplished the feat somewhat to his own satisfaction. The young gentleman blew a whistle. A foreman came hurrying out. "'Take this chap out and see if he can drive,' he continued. "'If he can, arrange about his licence and put him on the staff.' The manager strolled nonchalantly away. Bliss, who had been struggling with a sense of reminiscence, suddenly remembered the morning when he had bought a thousand-pound car in the same place from this same young gentleman.' "'Whom have you driven for?' the foreman asked. "'No one, lately,' Bliss answered cautiously. "'I think I can manage all right, though. "'What are we going out on?' "'The foreman, who was a tall, loosely built person "'with high cheekbones and small, narrow eyes, "'selected a small land outlet and handed Bliss a tin of petrol. "'Fill her up,' he ordered. "'Have a look at the plugs?' Test the sparking and I'll be with you in ten minutes. Bliss did as he was told. Presently the foreman reappeared, wearing a coat and muffler. Climb up and take her out, he yawned. We will go down to Shepherd's Bush, you know the way. Bliss nodded. He drove off rather nervously at first, but still without mishaps. At Shepherd's Bush his passenger left him for a few moments while he paid a call on his family. As they neared the garage on their return journey the foreman stroked his chin. "'What's this job worth to you, young man?' he asked. Bliss was puzzled. "'It's worth a good deal to me,' he replied. "'I've been out of work for some time, and I've scarcely a bob left. "'You'll get thirty shillings a week.' "'The foreman continued. "'Will you agree to give me five shillings a week for a month "'if I make a favourable report? "'It's the usual thing.' "'Bliss sighed. "'If that's so,' he consented, "'I'll do it. "'Then just pull up at the pub yonder and we'll wet it,' "'the foreman declared. "'You handle the car all right. "'A little more confidence is all you want.' "'I've not enough money,' Bliss announced desperately for two drinks.' The foreman scratched his head reflectively. "That's a pity,' he said. "'Never mind. I'll lend you a shilling. You can add it to the five shillings for the first week.' He produced the coin from a wash-leather bag. Bliss pocketed it with a short laugh. "'Are you Welsh, Scotch, or Semitic?' he inquired as they entered the public house. The foreman shook his head. I don't know whether you'll get it at me, young man, but I'll take sixpence the gin cold. Bliss entered on his new occupation the same afternoon, and the first ten days passed not unpleasantly. The livery provided for him when he was sent out to drive kept him warm, and although he had one or two narrow escapes, he managed to get through his first few jobs without misadventures. He even received with gratitude a tip of half a crown from a physician whom he took on his rounds, a shilling from a spinster lady whom he took from Hyde Park Square to a meeting at Richmond and back again, and five shillings from a young man of his acquaintance who engaged him for the evening and kept him waiting for two hours outside his own favourite restaurant his new position provided him beyond a doubt with more time for reflection than any of his previous essays into industrial life. For hours together he watched the great human tide of London sweep along her pavements. He saw the people who comprised it from their own point of view, faces into which he would never have glanced for a moment, awakened in him now a peculiar and real sympathy. He felt himself curiously out of touch with the world he had quitted, though there were times when he longed, almost hysterically, for the luxuries and comforts which he had left behind him. There were also times when he thought with aversion of the daily routine of his past life. On his evenings off he turned deliberately towards the East End for his amusements, He patronised the huge music halls in the outlying districts of London. Often he walked the streets and open spaces where the throngs were greatest. He made a few promiscuous acquaintances, none of which, however, survived the first half-hour or so of conversation. Yet, all the time, he was very lonely. One night in Drury Lane he came face to face with Francis. "'At last!' he cried almost exultantly. She gave him her hand. "'That's all very well,' she said frankly. "'But why haven't you been to see me?' "'I came last Sunday,' he replied. "'The house was closed.' She nodded. "'You happened to come just when there was no one there then,' she remarked. "'I'd left my address for you. Where are you going to now?' He realised with a sudden start, that she was paler and not so well-dressed. "'It's my evening off,' he declared. "'I was just going to have something to eat "'and try for the gallery at the Lyceum afterwards. "'What about you?' "'I've just left work,' she told him. "'I was just going back to my new rooms.' "'Come with me and have some dinner,' he begged. "'She shook her head doubtfully.' "'There's a little place in the next street where we can dine for tenpence,' he went on eagerly. "'Let's go there, and we can have a talk. I can manage the theatre too, if you like. Anyhow, we can go to a picture palace. If I may pay for my own dinner,' she stipulated. He laughed, and they turned away together. He led her to the little place he knew of, a tiny eating-house in a back street, where, for some reason or other, Everything was clean, and a window was sometimes opened. They found a corner table and ordered their little repast with great care. You see, she explained, setting down the menu, I've left Mr. Masters, and I didn't find another place till last week. You've left Mr. Masters? he gasped. She nodded. I couldn't help it, she said. Perhaps I'll tell you all about it one day. They were both hungry, and they frankly abandoned conversation while they ate their soup. Bliss was counting the coins in his trousers' pocket with the fingers of his right hand. Your dinner, he announced, will cost you one and a penny. I've reckoned it all out. I'll let you pay that, but I'm going to stand a bottle of wine. She shook her head at him. You are the most improvident person, she declared. What do we want wine for? Nevertheless, he had his way. They sipped the Medoc, a bottle which cost eighteen pence, almost reverently. Mind, I consider it wickedly extravagant, she protested. Caught by a wave of reminiscence, he laughed and closed his eyes. She looked at him disapprovingly. I mean it, she insisted. Now, tell me, please, where are you employed, and what are you earning? I'm supposed to be getting thirty shillings a week at the Sun Motor Company, he informed her, but a beast of a foreman there is deducting five shillings for the first month because he got me the job. Fellow who gets four pounds ten a week himself, too. Pig? However, he continued. It's something to have a job at all, and a roof over one's head. "'I wonder how it is that life is so difficult for some of us,' she sighed. "'Sometimes it seems absolutely terrifying. There is so little between one's daily wage and utter destitution. Do you know, I had seven shillings in the world when I found this place.' "'But, uh, tell me why you left Mr. Masters?' He had made up his mind to marry me, she answered, and I—I I couldn't. Why? he asked hoarsely. She turned her head, and their eyes met. A moment later, under the coarse tablecloth, their hands met too. The little eating-house seemed suddenly transformed. All the warmth and splendour of life were there. It was, as a matter of fact, a very bohemian little spot indeed. A man who had finished his dinner at an adjoining table had taken a mandolin from its case, and, leaning back, was making tinkling music. The people by whom they were surrounded were nearly all snatching only a few moments from their work, musicians, many of them on their way to take their place in various orchestras, attendants at theatres, one of Bliss's own fellow chauffeurs. There was none of the abandon of the diner-out. The day was still strenuous with these people, yet Bliss and Francis, with their hands linked hidden under the tablecloth, looked out upon the little room and found no fault with it. "'So you are a chauffeur now?' she exclaimed, suddenly leaning forward as the waiter brought their next course. I'm afraid you are a very rolling stone, a commercial traveller, light porter to that shocking old gentleman, Mr. Cockerill. What else have you been, I wonder? Greengrocer's assistant, he answered promptly. Jolly well I was doing at it too, if only the man whose place I was taking hadn't turned up unexpectedly. She sighed. It seems to me that you are a very unpractical person. Up to now? he admitted, perhaps that is true. From this moment, however, I am going to turn over a new leaf. A young man of your education, she said severely, should be doing something better than occupying the position of a chauffeur at thirty shillings a week. With tips, he reminded her hopefully, I've made six shillings in tips already this week. I don't consider, she declared, that tips are dignified.' He was crestfallen for a moment. "'Quite a recognised thing in our profession,' he assured her. "'Kind of thank-you offering from my passengers, I think, for having reached the end of their journey safely.' She laughed softly. Without any spoken word between them, they seemed to have drifted into a closer intimacy and understanding. "'I want you—' she said presently, to tell me truthfully why, after you had done that splendid stroke of business for Mr. Masters, you refused to stay on with him. You could have had any post you liked, and, and, she added disconsolately, everything would have been so different. He leaned a little closer towards her. I will tell you the truth. I borrowed the money to carry out that coup from the greatest enemy I have in life, and his one proviso was that I should not benefit from it in any shape myself. "'You borrowed it from your greatest enemy?' she repeated. "'Why on earth did he lend it to you?' "'He was under certain obligations to me,' Bliss declared, "'which he could not evade.' I can assure you that the five hundred pounds was no more to him than a snap of the fingers. He could have given it as a tip to a waiter, and never missed it. Sometimes, she said, looking steadfastly into his eyes, I think you are a little mad. Generally, he replied, I'm sure of it. Tonight, for instance, here in this wretched little eating-house, with a few shillings in my pocket, nothing in the bank— and not a spare suit of clothes to my name. I feel as though paradise were close at hand. What's that? He turned sharply around. A young man in soiled overalls had approached their table unseen. He leaned over and made his announcement in a hoarse but confidential whisper. Governor's very sorry, but two of the chaps are away ill, and George has had to take a car up to Yorkshire." He wants you for an order that's just come in. Bliss nodded. I'll be there in five minutes, he promised. The man departed with a grin which was meant to be sympathetic. I'll have to go, Bliss grumbled. It's my evening off, but they don't take any notice of that. Of course you must go, she agreed, drawing on her gloves. For one moment, please, he begged. Sit where you are. I want to look at you. The man who had been playing on the mandolin had gone, but another of a company of musicians had drawn a violin from its case and was making soft music at the other end of the room. The place was full. The odor of many dinners hung heavily upon the smoke-laden air. It was in this setting that Bliss looked for the first time appraisingly upon the woman who had taught him a new emotion. Her dark grey, ready-made costume was cut on prim lines and fitted her only moderately well, but the grace of her young figure triumphed over its imperfections. Her neck was soft and white, a stray wisp of hair had escaped from the thickly braided coils. She was a little pale, perhaps, but her courageous mouth seemed to defy the suggestion of ill-health. Her eyes were very soft and sweet. Even as she turned and met his searching gaze, little lines spread from them, and she laughed. "'How dare you look at me like that?' she protested. "'One moment longer,' he pleaded. His eyes rested on her hat, a plain black felt with a drooping brim decorated with a rather tired-looking little bunch of violets. He glanced down at her many times mended gloves, which she had just succeeded in buttoning. He even looked at the thick boots, one of which was shamelessly patched. Her lips were parted now. Miss Maisie Linden would have envied her, her teeth. "'I won't sit here for another moment,' she declared, rising. He followed her example, rewarding the waiter with a sixpenny tip, although he was conscious of the rank extravagance of the action. Forgive me, he begged. I just wanted a little mind picture of you, something that couldn't easily be displaced. End of chapter fourteen.